the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 37, Aftermath. In the last episode, we witnessed the bloody demise of the French monarchy. In this episode, we're going to examine the immediate consequences of the Second Revolution, as well as the priorities and policies of both the Assembly and the new insurrectionary commune. We're also going to examine the multiple winners and losers of the 10th of August, unpacking the positions of various individuals, factions and institutions. Before we get into it, a huge thank you to everyone who is supporting Grey History, whether it be on Patreon or on social media or simply telling friends and family. Thank you, as the show would not be possible without you. 2022 will be a make or break year for Grey History, and so I can't express how grateful I am for your support of the podcast. A special call out to those people who have signed up as Patreon supporters since the last episode. This includes the new virtuous citizen Isaac and the new true revolutionary Mark. I would like to take the opportunity to say a special thank you to Mark, who not only signed up as a Patreon, but made an incredibly generous one-off donation as a contribution towards the last 36 episodes. I was speechless, to say the least. As always, thank you to the extra generous champions of the people, Jeffrey, George, Cynthia and Brady, as well as the hero of the revolution, Brian. Also, thank you so much to Charles and Daniel, who both increased their pledge. In the last episode, I hinted that this episode would have a big announcement. However, in light of recent events in Eastern Europe, I don't think now is the right time and I'll hold off for another two weeks. Instead, I will simply state my unequivocal support for all people who are seeking to protect their human rights from blatant tyranny and despotism. The revolutionaries of 1789 may have died long ago, but their cause remains as noble and as relevant as ever. If we are to truly build a better world, if we are to confront and overcome the challenges of our times, we must do a better job of learning from the lessons of the past. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 37, Aftermath. Fear, shame, distress, dread. These are just some of the many feelings that I would wager Louis XVI confronted on the morning of the 10th of August, 1792. As the king's reign came to an abrupt end, I'm sure Louis experienced a vast array of emotions. 
but the feeling that I think best encapsulates the moment would be helplessness. For what was the king if not completely and utterly helpless? Having been convinced by his advisers to abandon the Tuileries Palace on the morning of the 10th, Louis and his family made for the Legislative Assembly, which was meeting nearby. Upon arriving at the Assembly, he declared to the deputies inside, I have come here to prevent a great crime. I thought I could not be safer than with you. The assembly which greeted the king was very different to the one he had opened less than a year before. Ideologically, this body was no friend of the monarch. While 745 deputies had been elected in 1791, Louis had now entered what was, in effect, a rump parliament. As discussed in the last episode, the 10th of August saw violence against many leading conservative politicians and journalists. Remember, the Fillon Club was sacked during the insurrection, former public servants were murdered, one royalist journalist was even beheaded. Given this situation, many Fillon deputies abandoned their posts. The result was a body now manned by less than 300 men, as most of the constitutional monarchists were missing in action. With less than two-fifths of the deputies in attendance, This was a rump assembly, and without the presence of the Fillons, the body was firmly under the influence of the Girondins, who remained. Sitting as the body's president was none other than the famous Girondin orator Vernieu, a man we have heard from often in our story. Although ideologically a staunch Republican, he was no insurrectionist and greeted the king warmly. You may rely, sire, On the firmness of the National Assembly, its members have sworn to die in supporting the rights of the people and the constituted authority. With the king now in the safety of the Assembly, the monarch had intended to sit next to the president of the body, Vernieu. Yet, if the king's hasty arrival at the Assembly was his first act of helplessness for the day, Now came the second. The deputy Francois Chabot, an influential member of the Cordelier Club, rose to object. The former friar demanded that the king be removed from the president's side, as his presence would restrict the freedom of debate and went against the constitution. Of course, Chabot's fellow Cordelier members were outside the assembly and up to their eyeballs in overthrowing the aforementioned constitution. But he did have a point. The assembly agreed, and the royal family were ushered into a small caged space which was generally used to house reporters. Witnessing the scene, one deputy remarked that as the royals were led into the box, their heads were lowered like whipped dogs. Approximately 10 square feet or 3 square metres in size, the box was more akin to a cell. Reinforcing that fact was the grill which obscured their faces. Cramped into this cell, the royals would watch their destiny unfold. For those interested, I've posted an artist's interpretation of the scene on Instagram and Patreon, and there's a link in the show notes. Yet, 
If the position of the king and queen can be described as helpless, so too can that of the assemblies. After all, the insurrection was not being led by the assembly, nor was it being carried out by troops acting on its behalf. The revolution was being led by the insurrectionary commune, which had literally self-declared its legitimacy just a few hours earlier. Stacked with men who had the intention to dissolve the assembly and replace it with a new national convention, the position of the deputies wasn't tremendously better than that of the kings. Optimistically, the deputies could be described as observers of the morning's events. If I was to be less generous, they too were captives. They weren't quite the king trapped in a cell-like box, that's for sure, but tellingly, they shared the same space. The deputies were captives without chains. The helplessness of the deputies was soon reinforced when fighting broke out in the neighbouring palace. As the Swiss guards defended the Tuileries, rogue musket balls from the nearby struggle hit the building housing the assembly. At some points in time, deputies ducked as balls ricocheted above them, entering through open windows. But the real danger for the assembly came not from the struggle outside, but the insurrectionists who now occupied the town hall. Shortly after the legislature sent a delegation to try to stop the fighting, a group of armed citizens stormed their way into the assembly. Armed with pikes and sabres, the leader of this band brought a message from the new insurrectionary commune and reassured the deputies of their safety. However, his words also provided a reminder as to the new power in Paris. We are here in the name of the people to agree with you measures necessary for the public welfare. The people have authorised us to inform you that you still have their confidence. But at the same time, they declare that they recognise no right to pass judgment on actions occasioned by the legitimate resistance to oppression, save that of the French people, who, met together in its own councils, is sovereign over you and us. That's a fancy way of saying you can stay in your seats, provided you do as you're told. Like the king, the assembly was helpless. Experiencing pressure from the insurrectionary commune to legitimise and build upon the morning's events, over the next few hours the assembly debated motions on how to proceed. The crowd which had pushed their way into the assembly, as well as citizens which occupied the galleries, made their opinions felt as debate raged over a wide variety of proposals. The most pressing matter was that of the fate of the king. What was the assembly to do with this caged monarch? The revolutionary citizens who occupied the assembly demanded immediate dethronement, but the Girondin leadership who now dominated the assembly felt that the body had no constitutional authority to determine the king's fate. As such, a compromise package was drafted, literally as fighting continued outside in the neighbouring palace. The assembly decreed that the king would be suspended. His fate would be determined by a new national convention, its name inspired by the constitutional convention 
which had existed in the United States just five years prior. This body would not only determine Louis's fate, but also write a new constitution, as one was needed to replace the clearly obsolete constitution of 1791. Elections for this body would be held within weeks, and importantly, the body would be elected by universal male suffrage. The most radical sections of Paris had only admitted passive citizens a few weeks prior, and now the entire nation would follow suit. Finally ending the loathed distinction between active and passive citizens, France became the first major modern European nation to fully embrace democracy as the basis for political legitimacy. By comparison, universal male suffrage would not be fully introduced in the United Kingdom until 1918, more than 125 years later. In the United States, each state took a unique approach, but it wasn't until the mid-19th century that the vast majority of white men had the ability to vote. Furthermore, universal suffrage for all male citizens, regardless of race, wasn't established until 1870 with the introduction of the 15th Amendment. In reality, however, universal male suffrage took much longer due to grandfather clauses, literacy tests, poll taxes, and other disqualification techniques used in southern states well into the 20th century. So, to say that the French were ahead of their time is an understatement. Well, at least as it relates to universal male suffrage. Ironically, France was a laggard when it came to universal female suffrage, the Brits introducing it in 1928, and the French introducing it more than a decade and a half later, in 1944. And yes, for those World War II buffs doing the maths, France introduced universal female suffrage while the French government was in exile and the country was occupied by Nazi Germany. Anyway, I have well and truly digressed. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Having dealt with the king, the assembly turned its attention to his ministers. Brousseau suggested that the king's ministry did not have the confidence of the nation, and the assembly agreed. The monarchist Fillon ministers, which had replaced the Girondin ministers back in June, were promptly removed from office. With the ministry cleared out, it was agreed that the king's role as the executive would be replaced by a new ministerial council, just as the sections had demanded a week prior. The assembly wasted no time and elected a new ministry that day. Now, 
Having just mentioned the Gironde ministers which were dismissed back in June, you might see where we're going with this. If you recall, the Girondin ministers Roland, Clavier and Sivan were fired by the king after Roland wrote a pretty fiery letter to the monarch. The then interior minister had publicly reprimanded the king for vetoing laws targeting emigres and refractory priests, and proclaimed that the king's actions were destabilising the nation. A week after the dismissal, Paris erupted in the famous demonstration of the 20th of June, and a key demand of the mob, which had stormed both the palace and the assembly, was the recall of the Girondin ministers. Well, now there was an opportunity to do just that. As a result, Roland was reinstated as Minister of the Interior, Clavier was recalled as Minister of Finance, and Savan was returned as Minister of War. The Girondins had done it. Their ministers were back in office, and now they answered directly to the Girondin-dominated assembly. In a word, hashtag winning. As a side note, Patreon supporters of the show, it might be worth re-listening to bonus episode 28 titled The Brousseauan Ministry. It covers the same ministers, as well as de Maurier and Madame Roland, all of whom will be individuals which continue to make prominent appearances in our story going forward. You can find episode 28 on the Patreon page. Despite all this winning for the Girondin faction, there was just one teeny tiny problem. Yes, the Girondins controlled the assembly. Yes, they now appeared to control the ministry. But the one thing that they most certainly did not control was Paris. Paris was the domain of the newly formed insurrectionary commune, and the radical clubs, sections and militiamen which backed it. As a result, the assembly needed a bridge. They needed someone who had the confidence of the radicals of Paris. Someone who commanded authority and respect within the groups which had so clearly demonstrated the impotency of the constitutional authorities. Groups which could forcibly dissolve the assembly at any moment. For that task, the deputies turned to none other than the man who some historians consider the ringleader of the 10th of August. The assembly, dominated by Girondins, turned to the Cordelier Georges Danton. It's here that we discover why Danton is considered a chief benefactor of the insurrection of 10 August. The assembly, needing a way to pacify the threat of the new commune, turned to Danton, a leader of the radical Cordelier club and undeniably a man of significant influence amongst the city's radicals. But the assembly underestimated his influence, and for that matter, his skill. And it's here that we touch on the first real winner of the coup of 10 August. Although appointed the Minister of Justice, Danton would become the de facto president of the new Executive Council. Expanding his influence over the portfolios of war and foreign affairs, throughout the next several episodes, we will see Danton becoming incredibly influential. Historian George Lefebvre, no friend of Danton, goes as far as describing Danton as the master of the Executive Council. Now, having just emphasised Danton's influence and power, 
I do want to emphasise that he was no supreme dictator. Far from it. The nation of France was on the brink of anarchy. No one controlled France. No individual, no faction, no institution. France, simply put, was an absolute basket case. And it would take the terror to enforce centralised authority once more. However, the new Minister of Justice would become one of the most influential revolutionaries over the next several months. Far more influential than the Girondins predicted. Historian Charles Mallet describes the rest of the ministry as a gang of bewildered clerks when compared to this revolutionary giant. And here is how historian Christopher Hibbert summarises the situation which unfolds. In this quote, take note not only of Danton's personal power, but of how Hibbert describes the power balance between the assembly and the newly formed commune. The Journée of 10 August succeeded in its purpose, and Danton, recognised as a man with unique influence in the sections, became Minister of Justice. He was, in fact, far more than that. He was the vehement tribune of the people, the mirabeau of the mob, the voice of the revolution, indispensable to the Girondins, as one of their supporters admitted, the man whose oratory and intelligence could save them from their enemies. It was he alone among the new ministers who exercised a commanding influence in the insurrectionary commune, which was a far more powerful body than the Girondin government itself. It was he who guided the policies of the ministers of foreign affairs and of war, as well as those of the Ministry of Justice. It was among his friends in the Cordelier Club that were found many of the emissaries who were sent out into the provinces to reconcile the people to the new administration in Paris and to justify the events of 10 August. For a less favourable view of Danton, one can turn to the Marxist historian George Lefebvre. Far more reserved in his praise than some historians, Lefebvre nonetheless notes Danton's influence and his skill as a statesman. We do know, however, that for the Girondins to turn to him, he must have had both popularity and commitments to the insurgents. Like Mirabeau, he was impetuous, inclined to indulge his taste for pleasure, and unencumbered by morality. In private company, he seemed a hearty fellow. As he was not a writer, many of his political ideas and intentions are lost to us. He gives the impression of testing the political wind before taking sides. Yet, he undeniably possessed many of the qualities that mark a statesman. The ability to evaluate quickly, a talent for rapid and bold decision, a sense of realism unclouded by scruples, and an eloquence enriched with captivating phrases. So, as the Tuileries Palace was stormed, and as the capital weathered a second revolution, the Assembly suspended the King, declared elections for a new national convention, and installed a new ministry with both Girondins and other radical Jacobins. Danton was undeniably one winner of the Second Revolution, and for the rest of this episode, 
I want to explore the other winners and losers, both institutions as well as individuals. In particular, I want to explore the position and priorities of the assembly, the commune, the sections, and then move on to the reaction of the provinces. In doing so, we'll touch base with our friends Brousseau, Robespierre, and Lafayette. Let's start with the assembly. In one sense, the assembly was a winner from the day's events. With the removal of the king, the king's veto, and the king's ministers, the assembly had finally been given a free hand to pursue its preferred policies. And boy, did it have a long list of things it wanted to pursue. Wasting no time, the assembly began to legislate literally on the 10th of August and continued to enact a range of reforms over the next month and a half until it was replaced by the new National Convention. The laws reflected the fact that the Assembly was now firmly under the control of Brousseau and his Girondin allies. Thus, it was their long-held policy objectives which were now vigorously pursued. Since November 1791, the king had been wielding his veto to stymie their solutions to the nation's troubles. Now, there was no veto, and as a result, harsh laws against the aristocratic emigres were finally enforced. Emigres in arms against France were finally prescribed as traitors. Furthermore, the property of all emigrant nobles was seized by the government irrelevant of whether or not they intended to wage war against revolutionary France. Having moved against the counter-revolutionaries abroad, the assembly then targeted the counter-revolutionaries at home. New laws centred on the clergy and the church were also put into effect, targeting both constitutional and non-constitutional priests. All clergy were now required to take an additional oath of loyalty to the revolution, and those who refused were either deported or detained. Additional church property was put up for sale, religious houses were closed, and further restrictions were enforced, such as constitutional priests being barred from wearing religious garb in public places. Yet, it wasn't just the people's enemies who were the target of new laws. Reforms targeting property were passed as well, and not merely property owned by emigres or the church. Communal property was nationalised, and many seigneurial rights were abolished without compensation. The move essentially nullified those privileges which had survived the abolition of privileges in 1789, because they were initially classified as a form of property instead of as a form of privilege. Interestingly, some of these new laws had been championed by Brousseau and his allies for quite some time, while others reflected the political realities of a nation beset by civil unrest, war, and extreme hardship. We'll explore the full impact of these policies in future episodes, but it's in these policies that one can see some of the real immediate consequences of the Second Revolution, impacting not just Paris, but the entire nation. Unsurprisingly, these decisions had important consequences. Perhaps most especially, they renewed and reinvigorated the revolution's confrontation with non-constitutional priests and the Catholic Church. However, while the Assembly was a winner in one sense, 
it was most certainly a loser in another. The true power in Paris was now the Commune, and the Commune used this power to dictate its policies to the Assembly. We'll touch on these policies shortly and throughout the next few episodes, but the insurrectionary authority wasted no time in ensuring that the Assembly legitimised its seizure of both the municipal government and the National Guard. Furthermore, it wasted no time in ensuring that the Assembly agreed to dissolve itself and call fresh elections. Sure, the body was permitted to exist for a few more weeks, but it would be replaced by a new national convention, a convention which had been more or less forced upon the Assembly by the insurrectionary commune. Now, let there be no mistake in this. The Girondin leadership, which dominated the Assembly, had no incentive to call for fresh elections, especially when they found themselves the new masters of the government. Having just installed their men into the ministry, Rousseau and his allies had no reason to call immediate national elections. These elections were forced upon them by their political opponents in the radical clubs and sections. Those Jacobins and other radicals who had led the insurrection and now dominated the new commune. Thus, the Assembly may have agreed to elections, but realistically, it had done so against its will. Historian Robert Palmer describes the Assembly's decision as akin to signing its own death warrant, and the deputies knew it. In agreeing to its own dissolution, the Assembly, as an institution, was undeniably a big loser in the Second Revolution. Furthermore, while the institution of the Assembly was weakened by the 10th of August, so too were the Girondins who dominated it. To be clear, the distinction I'm making here is that not only was the institution of the Assembly weakened, but so was the political faction which now dominated both the body as well as the new ministry. Historian Marisa Linton notes that the revolution had resulted in the Girondins losing their credibility with the militants of Paris, because of how they had responded to the insurrection. Their decision to suspend the king instead of immediately dethroning him, as well as their less than enthusiastic attitude towards the revolt itself, helped to drive a lasting and definitive split between the city's radical sans-culottes and the Girondin leadership. This had two important consequences. Firstly, the Second Revolution exposed the Girondins to the possibility of the people's wrath at a time of great unrest, at a time when the nation was beset by war, inflation and food shortages, at a time when it was threatened by invasions, plots and conspiracies. Just as the Girondins assumed leadership of the nation, they had lost the support of the radical Parisians, which were responsible for the violent removal of their revolutionary predecessors. If the people rose up again, this time it would be the Girondins who paid the price. The second major impact of this split between the Girondins and the radicals of Paris was that it severely weakened the faction's hand against the Commune. Over the next few weeks, the Assembly would try to reassert itself, to push back against the powerful municipal authority. But without the support of the people, the Assembly gradually became more subordinate to the newly established Commune. 
Thus, the Assembly as an institution, as well as the Girondin faction who dominated it, were both, in some ways, losers of the 10th of August. The Assembly had gained mastery over the nation, but the Commune had gained mastery over Paris. The Girondins had gained mastery over the Assembly, but they had lost their connection with the revolutionary populace, and their enemies had gained mastery over the Commune. So, the Assembly and the Girondins who dominated it experienced mixed outcomes on the 10th of August. However, one body which was an undeniable winner was the new insurrectionary commune. Revolutions create opportunities for new powers to rise, whether those powers be individuals, factions or institutions. In this case, it was the insurrectionary commune which would rise from the chaos of revolution. And, it should be noted, it created its own opportunity to do so. The body and those supporting it were unilaterally responsible for the success of the 10th of August. This was their victory, a victory secured while the Assembly was busy acquitting the scoundrel Lafayette and refusing to dethrone the traitorous King Louis. Having succeeded in toppling the King and securing the summoning of a new national convention, the Commune had achieved two of its key objectives. But it was never going to stop there. The Commune, dominated by Montagnard Jacobins and other members of the city's revolutionary clubs and societies, were never going to simply hand over power to the Legislative Assembly, an assembly which was dominated by the Girondin faction they disliked and despised. Furthermore, threats against the revolution remained unchecked, and what had the rebellion been for if not in order to mount a meaningful defence of the revolution? From the perspective of the commune, treacherous aristocrats, seditious priests, devious speculators, all these enemies remained at large, threatening the revolution and the people of France. Furthermore, justice had not yet been served to those who had partaken in the great royalist conspiracy of the 10th of August, a plot which saw Swiss guards unnecessarily murder innocent Parisians, at least from the perspective of the radicals of Paris. As such, in the days and weeks which followed the insurrection of 10 August, the Commune refused to surrender its power to the Assembly, but instead actively sought to increase it. With this power, it would focus on its own agenda, an agenda which sought to secure the nation's safety and organise the defence of Paris. In order to do this, the Commune relentlessly pursued all the enemies of the revolution. What followed was a series of events which some historians describe as the First Terror. Now, we'll get into the details of this terror in the next episode, but in short, it consists of pretty much everything you would expect when a new self-proclaimed government, lacking universal popular support, seizes power in a time of significant civil unrest and foreign war. The Commune instigated police raids, arbitrary detention, suppression of the free press, and the seizure of goods in the name of the nation's defence. Before long, a committee of vigilance had been established, as well as a new revolutionary tribunal 
to try the criminals who had committed crimes against the people. Back in all of this were both Marat and Robespierre, two men who had stayed in hiding during the events of the 10th, but joined the Commune as delegates for their local sections in the days that followed. Now, unsurprisingly, this series of priorities led the Commune to directly clash with the Assembly. As the Commune attempted to seize more police powers and establish what was in a sense a police state, the Assembly at times tried to reverse the growing strength of the Commune. By the end of August, the Assembly found the courage to demand that the Commune be dissolved and replaced with a newly elected body. The only problem for the Assembly was that it lacked the support of the revolutionary populace. And while some sections had grown quite concerned about the zeal of the Commune in its use of its new sweeping powers, those sections weren't prepared to back the Assembly with force. Thus, time after time, when the Assembly and the Commune disagreed, it was the Commune which won the day. As I said earlier, the Assembly may have gained mastery over France, but it was the Commune which had gained mastery over Paris. It is for this reason that some historians refer to this period of time as the dictatorship of the Commune, and as we shall see, the Commune's power and position will have tremendous impacts on the revolution's direction and nature. Now, before we move on to the sections of Paris, I do want to touch on what Robespierre was up to in this time between 10 August and the formation of the National Convention on 20 September. During these six weeks, Robespierre was very busy. Although the self-styled champion of the people played no part in the insurrection which was supposedly championed by the people, Robespierre wasted no time in establishing himself in the insurrectionary commune. In the days following the successful revolt, Robespierre was elected as a representative for one of the city's sections, and subsequently the capable politician became a very influential member of the new body. In fact, some historians depict a scene where Robespierre comes to dominate the commune, essentially portraying the institution as the instrument of Robespierre's will. Personally, I think that portrayal is taking things too far, relying on the overly simplistic narrative of Robespierre being some kind of all-powerful puppet master. In reality, there were many influential, talented and ambitious men in the commune, and while Robespierre was one of them, he was certainly not the supreme overlord of the town hall. Now, Robespierre's participation in the new revolutionary commune may strike you as a little odd. After all, Robespierre was a member of the original National Assembly, the body which had crafted the Constitution of 1791 and created the Legislative Assembly. The very Constitution and Assembly, the Commune, had essentially overthrown. But the year which had followed the dissolution of the National Assembly had been a traumatic one. War, hunger, treason, these were no small issues. As the threats to the people magnified, Robespierre had finally adopted a position which endorsed both republicanism and the need for insurrection. Desperate times called for desperate measures. Thus, by the time of the Second Revolution, Robespierre perceived the event to be a legitimate expression of the people's will. 
According to the esteemed Robespierre biographer, historian Peter McPhee, Robespierre fully embraced the events of the 10th. Here is how McPhee portrays Robespierre's view of the insurrection, and the historian includes quotes from Robespierre himself. For Robespierre, the revolution of 10 August demonstrated the progress made since 1789. Then, the people of Paris had risen to free themselves from despotism. Liberty was but a vague notion. Now, the people had risen again to put into practice the principles proclaimed three years earlier by its first representatives. This time, however, the presence of the Federes meant that it was the French people, rather than the Parisians alone, who had risen. Now, quoting Robespierre, Thus began the most beautiful revolution to honour humanity. Let us say more, the only one which had an object worthy of mankind, that of finally setting up polities according to the immortal principles of equality, of justice, and of reason. Although not involved in the insurrection itself, Robespierre fully supported the events of the 10th. To him, the 10th of August would rectify the shortcomings of the 14th of July. It would be this revolution, the second revolution, which would secure liberty, equality, and justice for the French people. Furthermore, he was determined to help secure those virtuous principles. Throughout August, Robespierre lent his influence and his popularity to the Commune's cause. He championed the policies of the Commune, including its efforts to establish a new revolutionary tribunal and to acquire additional police powers. In fact, Robespierre appeared before the Assembly to demand that the body grant the Commune more powers, and when it refused to do so, well, the Commune just seized them anyway. We'll get into the details of some of these policies in the next episode, but Robespierre's work in the Commune was significant and it had three key consequences. Firstly, Robespierre's active and visible work in the Commune further increased his popularity within the revolutionary cohorts of Paris. While his popularity had taken a significant hit when he advocated against the upcoming foreign war, his standing rose dramatically when that conflict commenced terribly. Championed by some in the revolutionary press as the incorruptible, and recommended by some for the role of dictator in order to save the nation, Robespierre was already a man of considerable influence prior to the insurrection of 10 August. Now actively championing the Commune's cause, Robespierre vigorously defended not only the actions of the 10th, but the principles which the revolution supposedly represented. All of this lent him even further credibility in the eyes of the revolutionary clubs sections and press. Robespierre was on the rise. The second key consequence was that in lending his credibility and influence to the Commune, Robespierre was weakening the credibility and influence of the Assembly. And to be clear, this was deliberate. Robespierre despised the Girondins who now controlled the legislative body. To say that he distrusted them is an understatement. He believed them to be in league with the court, selfish and treasonous parasites who claimed to be the voice of the people, but in fact were all too eager to betray them for personal gain. 
In lending his credibility to the Commune, Robespierre was assisting the body in its power struggle with the Legislative Assembly. Robespierre's support was by no means pivotal to the success of the Commune, but it nevertheless helped to reinforce its authority and strengthen its claims to popular support. Of course, in doing so, he also weakened both the authority and popular support of the Legislative Assembly. Finally, Robespierre's actions at the Commune, especially those leading up to the traumatic events of early September, helped to drive a final and irreparable split within the Jacobin Club. For a while, the bitter rivalry between Brousseau and Robespierre had, at times, consumed the Jacobins. The Brousseauans and the Robespierreists, which in many ways aligned to the larger factions of the Girondins and the Montagnards, had for months been accusing the other of misleading the people and betraying the nation. The feud was so bitter and consuming that one contemporary remarked how the division of the Jacobins was the talk of the capital. The two sides would occasionally put down their arms, especially when counter-revolution threatened. But the success of 10 August had finally vanquished any schemes from Lafayette and the conservative Fillons in the assembly. With the Montagnards now advocating for extrajudicial tribunals, revolutionary justice, and what was, in a sense, the establishment of a police state in Paris, the divide between the two factions became permanent. The Girondins were convinced that Robespierre and his allies would seek to use these powers against them, while Robespierre likewise felt that the Commune was the only way to prevent a Girondin-dominated assembly and ministry from using similar powers against himself and his Montagnard associates. So, no sooner had the revolutionary left removed one enemy did they become fixated on the next. Division would once again grip the Jacobins, and this time, the losers would pay with their lives. Historian Gaetano Salvamini neatly summarises the power struggle in Paris the impact and work of Robespierre, and the influence of his theories and beliefs as he approached the struggles of the revolution. Robespierre had seen at once the immense significance of this dualism. Fortified by his influence over the Jacobins, he had joined the new General Council of the Commune on August 11th as delegate for the Place Verdôme section he could safely expect to dictate the policy of his colleagues as he wished, and he now set himself to ensure the Commune's supremacy over the Legislative Assembly, and to cultivate the idea it was the former's business not only to direct the approaching general election, but to keep a careful watch on the future convention. With support from the Paris Commune, a Jacobin majority would have to be introduced into the convention, the Girondins crushed, and the revolution brought to completion in accordance with the teachings of his master, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. To Robespierre, with his doctrinaire theories and illusions, the insurgents of August 10th and the men of the revolutionary commune personified all the authority, virtues and perfections of the sovereign people. So... The new commune and the Montagnard Jacobins who supported it were some of the real winners of the 10th of August, 
Before we move on to the situation in the provinces and touch base with our good friend, the Marquis de Lafayette, I do want to note one additional player in the power struggle unfolding in the capital. That player was the city's 48 sections. Although at times overlooked, if you think about it, these bodies held enormous power. Acting together, it was the sections which created the commune on the 10th of August, and it was the sections which commenced and led that insurrection. The commune may have controlled Paris, but the body derived its power and its legitimacy from the support of the sectional assemblies. If the commune lost that support, it would also lose both its power and its legitimacy. This is important because we're going to start to see some sections wanting to reclaim their power, particularly in the form of direct democracy. Some will start to advocate that real power should actually reside in the sections themselves, and delegates to the new municipal government should simply be obliged to vote as their sectional assemblies had voted on any given issue. What this means is that the commune and the representatives that comprise it are going to be extremely sensitive to the demands of the sectional assemblies, bodies who were eager to recall and replace their representatives should they prove disappointing. Combine this with the fact that the National Guard battalions were essentially under the control of the local sections, and you can see why these sections had enormous potential to wield significant power. This is a process that will play out over time and to varying degrees between the sections, but it's worth noting that the Assembly and the Commune were not the only powerful institutions in the capital. Since the new Commune's power was derived from the support of the sectional assemblies, the demands and desires of those assemblies were very influential during this period of time. Combine this with the powerful revolutionary clubs and societies, and, well, you had one hell of a mess. Historian Timothy Tackett provides a short summary of the absolute chaotic situation that was the political power struggle occurring in Paris. Yet even as the Assembly moved forward with a sweeping array of reforms, it found its leadership challenged as never before by the various parallel powers long present in Paris, but now more active and influential than ever. The logic of popular sovereignty and unbounded democracy had always posed problems for effective government. During this new interregnum, however, until the new convention could take power, an interregnum even more chaotic than that of 1789-1790, the climate of suspicion and mistrust pushed the city and the country to the edge of anarchy. The insurrectional commune, the Jacobins Club, and the individual Parisian sections would all challenge the authority of the National Assembly, so that in the end, no one was quite certain who was governing the country. So, that's the chaotic situation in Paris. The Legislative Assembly, the Insurrectionary Commune, and the city's sections were all vying for power. Different factions controlled different institutions, and personal feuds amplified divisions. 
add to the mix the ever-energetic revolutionary clubs and societies, as well as the Federe volunteers and local National Guard units, and what was left was one gigantic destabilising mess in the capital. Hardly the ideal situation, considering France was on the precipice of foreign invasion. Indeed, France was on the precipice of foreign invasion, and yet for the last few episodes we've been talking a lot about Paris. Too often stories on the French Revolution can read a little like the Parisian Revolution, so I want to take the time to explore what was happening outside of the revolutionary metropolis. I want to unpack how the departments responded to the suspension of the king, the massacre of the Swiss, and the rise of the insurrectionary commune. I want to explore how the second revolution was received outside of the capital, a revolution which was imposed upon the nation by an incredibly small proportion of its citizens. This is an ad. An ad for grey history. I want to ask you a question. Do you enjoy grey history? Does it make you smile or laugh or pause to consider an interesting idea or perspective? Do you walk away from the show and think, that's really neat, that's a cool fact, that's a thought-provoking observation? If the answer is yes, if you enjoy grey history and you want more grey history, then please support the show on Patreon. For as little as $2 per future episode, you can help me continue to produce grey history. And in addition to all those warm, fuzzy feelings from supporting an independent podcast, you'll get access to hours of bonus episodes and episode extras. You'll also get an ad-free feed and the ability to vote on the topics of upcoming bonus episodes, which are exclusively available to the Patreon sponsors of the show. So if you're enjoying Grey History, if you believe, as I do, that history's details and ambiguities should be embraced rather than ignored or oversimplified, please do your bit to support the podcast today. This will be a make or break year for the show, and with your support, not somebody else's, but with your support, I'm confident we can continue to explore history in a way that isn't black and white. There's links in the show notes and on the website, and you can cancel any time. So please, support Grey History today. In some corners of France, the events of the 10th of August were greeted with enthusiasm. Certain pockets of the country were quite supportive of the actions taken by the Parisian radicals. And in these communities, the actions of their fellow countrymen were replicated eagerly. Marseille, for example, had long been a bastion for republican and radical sentiment. The local mayor was a firm supporter of the revolution, and sectional assemblies quickly backed a pro-Republican agenda and officials who were willing to pursue it. Then going further, local Fillon officials and sympathisers were arrested, and those targeted were more than just those who inhabited Marseille. The revolutionaries of Marseille took it upon themselves to march on the department capital at Aix-en-Provence, sack the town hall, arrest officials they suspected of insufficient commitment to the revolution, and finally transferred the administrative functions of the department to Marseille. So, 
Not only were Marseille federés critical to the success of the insurrection of 10 August in Paris, but other Marseille citizens were critical to securing the revolution's footing in a key department as well. This was just one example though. Another can be found in Avignon, the former papal enclave which had been owned by the papacy since 1348 until its annexation by revolutionary France in late 1791. Divided between French nationalists and loyalists to the church, Avignon had previously been the scene of bitter clashes between pro-France and pro-papal sympathisers. However, in the wake of the 10th of August, French, and in particular Republican sentiment, reigned supreme. When the city came to elect its deputies for the new national convention, it would elect several candidates who were vehemently Republican. However, while some corners of France backed the events in Paris, others were less enthusiastic. By the end of August, the western department of Vendée was the scene of minor bouts of unrest. This region would become the epicentre of a brutal civil war in the following years, but it would be the convention's policies on conscription and de-Christianisation which finally drove the department to full-scale revolt. In the wake of the king's downfall, the unrest was relatively minor compared to what was to come. Instead, the most immediate hostile response to the events of the capital came from the nation's east. Lafayette and his army of some 30,000 men were headquartered in the town of Sedan, and initially the hero of two worlds was set on saving the king and the revolution from the Jacobin rabble in Paris. The threat he posed to both the Girondins in the assembly and the Montagnards in the commune was real. The commander convinced the department authorities of Ardennes to join him in his resistance, and they hoped to establish a new civil administration which would provide a rallying point for other departments across the nation. Other officials in the country's east tried to assist. Lafayette's friend Dietrich was the mayor of Strasbourg, and the capable scientist attempted to rouse the town to revolt. He failed in his efforts, and so too did Lafayette. It took less than a week for the revolt to begin falling apart. As the days passed, the dependability of Lafayette's troops began to wane, and consequently, the general soon realised that his cause was doomed. On the 19th of August, Lafayette and members of his staff quit their posts, realising that their cause was lost. Originally, Lafayette aimed for Holland and was planning to make his way to America. Joining him was the former deputy Alexander Lemaitre, you may recall that Lemaitre had been a prominent Fillon deputy, one of the so-called triumvirate along with Antoine Barnev and Adrien Duport. In fleeing France, both men undoubtedly saved themselves from certain execution for the crime of treason. But what awaited them was nonetheless horrible. Discovered by Austrian forces as they made their way to Holland, Lafayette and his companions were imprisoned. Historian Francois Mignot writes in disgust at Lafayette's treatment. He proceeded through the enemy's posts towards Holland, intending to go to the United States, his adopted country. But he was discovered 
and arrested with his companions. In violation of the rights of nations, he was treated as a prisoner of war and confined first in the dungeons of Megdeburg and then by the Austrians at Olmutz. The English Parliament itself took steps in his favour, but it was not until the Treaty of Campo Formio that Bonaparte released him from prison. During four years of the hardest captivity, subject to every description of privation, kept in ignorance of the state of his country and of liberty, with no prospect before him but that of perpetual and harsh imprisonment, he displayed the most heroic courage. He might have obtained his liberty by making certain retractions, but he preferred remaining buried in his dungeon to abandoning, in the least degree, the sacred cause he had embraced. Having departed his army on the 19th of August 1792, Lafayette would remain in prison until late 1797. His demise was celebrated by his enemies on both the left and the right. For the left-wing Jacobins in the capital, a chief threat, arguably the chief domestic threat, had been vanquished within two weeks of the insurrection. With Lafayette's departure, the army could be further purged of moderates and monarchists, and commanded by capable and committed revolutionaries. For the émigrés and the ultra-royalist right, Lafayette's capture was greeted with celebration. For them, the inglorious downfall of the hero of two worlds was an omen for future victories, justice for his crimes against the king, and proof that God would punish those who attacked the monarchy, aristocracy, and the one true faith. In short, if Danton and Robespierre were winners of the 10th of August, Lafayette was certainly a loser. His time in a dungeon would end better than King Louis's, but it would be a long five years nonetheless. So, some corners of France embraced the Second Revolution, and others attempted a brief resistance. But, was that it? Was that all France had to say about the overthrow of the king, about the massacre of the Swiss, about an upstart commune casting aside the nation's constitution and dictating its terms to the national legislature? Well, believe it or not, yes. What is truly amazing about the 10th of August is that it's a revolution which was conducted by an incredibly small proportion of the populace, and yet it elicits such a minor response from the rest of the nation. France was a country of at least 26 million people, Paris was a city of perhaps 700,000, and the crowd which overthrew the king was maybe 20,000. The Marxist historian George Lefebvre notes that those who actually participated in the insurrection, or who unhesitatingly approved of it, were few in number. And yet despite that, the provinces more or less shrugged. If a single word could be used to describe the mood of the nation, I would use the word apathy. The indifference to the fall of the monarchy, which had existed for centuries, seems astounding, especially when you compare it to the events of 1789. When the Bastille fell, the nation erupted. A municipal revolution swept aside the old regime across the entire country. 
Communities joined in celebrations and ceremonies. A national, patriotic enthusiasm gripped the citizens of France. Three years later, when the demonstration of the 20th of June had violently threatened the king in his palace and the deputies in the assembly, objections poured in from the provinces, demanding the king's person and power be respected. Events in the capital had, on multiple occasions, elicited substantial responses from the departments. But now, in the wake of 10 August, there was, well, almost nothing. Just silence. Now, to be clear, the countryside, more generally, was far from silent. Food and commodity shortages, wartime requisitioning, high inflation, all of these were contributing to some very serious unrest which we've been discussing for some time. Remember, it was this sort of unrest which prompted the then Interior Minister Roland to write that stern letter to the king, that letter which ultimately got him fired back in June. Furthermore, this unrest was part of the reason why the Legislative Assembly decided to abolish many of the remaining seigneurial rights in its final days. It was hoped that this reform might quiet the peasantry, just as the original abolition of privileges seemed to do in August 1789. So, the countryside was by no means quiet. But, as it relates explicitly to the 10th of August, in that sense, it was. The majority of the nation seemed to shrug in response to the deposition of the king. Which begs the question, why? Historian Jonathan Israel offers an interesting explanation. According to Israel, the forces of moderation, in particular the Fionns, had been widely discredited by the failures of the war and the dysfunctional nature of the Constitution of 1791. With royalists eagerly embracing counter-revolution, departure from the monarchy became the most logical pathway for those seeking to save the revolution from both domestic and foreign threats. Israel writes, What explains the astonishing solidarity of the August 1792 revolution? By this point, both Fionns and moderation were widely discredited. It was not just the usurpations of particular individuals. Many realised through reading and debates that accounted for France's ills. The moderate constitutionalist structure was illogical, unworkable, and urgently needed changing. Intellectually, observed Lonthener, the most aware had fully grasped beforehand the need to break the monarchical and moderatist grip. A key feature of the 10 August Rising he noted, was that practically no one of any reading, judgment or discernment was any longer willing to support the crown, aristocracy and clergy. Offering a similar explanation for the quiet response of the departments is historian Gaetano Salvamini. Salvamini argues that the exhausted populace viewed the events of Paris as an unfortunate necessity, required for the success of the war effort and forced upon them by regrettable circumstances. Like Israel, Salvamini paints a picture of resignation, a scene where many passively accepted the events of the 10th, in part 
because there appeared to be no viable alternative. Unlike the rising of June 20th, which had aroused so much protest, the revolution of August 10th was received by most people with resignation. The French nation, as a whole, alarmed and exacerbated by the Duke of Brunswick's manifesto and accustomed by long tradition passively to accept orders from the capital, had long been prepared for the king's dethronement. They adapted themselves to the consequences of August 10th as to an unfortunate necessity, forced on them by war and court intrigues. So, some historians, like Israel and Salvamini, argue that the nation's apathy and resignation were critical factors in the country's acceptance of the 10th of August. Yes, there were elements of the population who supported the insurrection, but even some Marxist historians note just how few in number these citizens were when compared to the entire population. Despite this, with the most prominent royalists either in hiding, on the run, or already outside of France, Republican revolutionaries were quickly able to establish themselves not only in the capital and sympathetic communities, but throughout the country. Like we saw in Marseille, small cohorts of committed revolutionaries would use legitimate and illegitimate means to secure the safety of the nation, and with it, support for the second revolution. However, the problem for the French revolutionaries was that changing the government at various levels was not nearly enough to secure the safety of the revolution, nor was arresting a few fillons or closing down the royalist press. The coalition armies were finally on the march. Food shortages and economic hardship remained ever-present. The nation's unity was cracking in the face of counter-revolutionary schemes and revolutionary infighting. The capital was as divided as ever. The provinces were disorganised and distant, and enthusiasm for the revolution had suffered greatly since its peak just a few years prior. As the Duke of Brunswick marched his armies to France, the revolution was in dire states. The Duke's infamous manifesto had promised to eradicate Paris should it touch the king, and the French had done much more than that. The revolution appeared to be on the brink of collapse, and so radical revolutionaries called for drastic solutions. As we shall see, those solutions were terrifying. We have reached the first terror and the invasion of France. Thank you for listening to episode 37, Aftermath. In the next episode, we'll be covering the first terror. Need I say more? There are two episode extras for this episode. The first explores an account of the storming of the Tuileries Palace from a federé from Brest. I stumbled upon it in research for this episode and I thought it would be great to hear from a combatant on the 10th of August, as well as from a perspective which isn't particularly sympathetic to the Swiss Guards. The second is an interesting perspective from historian Bertha Gardner. Gardner condemns the inadequacy and ineptitude of Louis XVI, blames him for the events of the 10th, and finally 
offers her own explanation as to why the people of France so easily accepted this second revolution. Before you go, I want to ask you a question. Do you enjoy grey history? Does it make you smile or laugh or pause to consider an interesting idea or perspective? If the answer is yes, if you enjoy grey history and you want more grey history, then please support the show on Patreon. There's links in the show notes and on the website, and you can cancel anytime. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.